um, opening question, okay. Um, have you ever wondered um, if the things that you do every day is meaningless? Uh, the monotony of Zoom school every day, the monotony of our circumstances not really changing anytime soon, the monotony of doing the same thing over and over again, the, the monotony of low-grade burnout every day. Have you ever wondered, does any of it even matter? Do our lives even matter? Does our existence even matter? You know, one of my favorite uh, comic series is um, Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, I, I grew up reading it. Uh, I guess it isn't a surprise that I like it because Calvin and Hobbes, their names are both based off of the French theologian John Calvin and the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. But in one of the strips, uh, Calvin is in class to turn to pay, um, Calvin is in class and he asks his teacher, Miss Wormwood, a math question, which isn't really a math question. Um, he asks her, given that sooner or later, Miss Wormwood, we're all just going to die, what is the point of learning about integers? Miss Wormwood, uh, Miss Wormwood uh, responds by telling the class to turn to page 83 in their math book. Uh, disgruntled, uh, Calvin thinks to himself, nobody likes us big, big, big picture people. And so later that afternoon, after school, Calvin says the same thing to Hobbes. He says, the problem with people is they don't really look at the big picture. Uh, eventually, we're each going to die. Our species is going to go extinct. The sun will explode and the universe will collapse. Existence is not only temporary, it's pointless. We're all doomed and worse, nothing matters. To which Hobbes replies, I see why people don't like to look at the big picture. And then Calvin, and then Calvin says, well, it puts a bad day in perspective. Now what this uh, brief comic strip reveals is that our perspective of the future shapes our perspective of the present. How we feel about today is shaped by the reality of tomorrow. If our eventual future is death and decay, then why does anything that we do today even matter? How would you answer that question? Is it true that everything is pointless and that nothing matters? Is there any point to our lives? If, if, if you simply reflect and look at the things that you do every day from waking up, getting ready for school, attending class, doing homework, talking with your friends, reading your Bibles, doing churchy things, obeying your parents. If you think about it, does any of that even matter if we're all just going to die? Now, as we approach our passage tonight, the Apostle Paul actually does have an answer to this set of existential questions. In our passage tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul will actually say that everything that we do in this life is meaningless and pointless if Jesus did not rise from the dead. It is not an overstatement to say that everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not an overstatement to say that everything is meaningless if Jesus still lays dead somewhere in Palestine. We have every single reason to be depressed, worried, hopeless if Jesus was not raised by God from the dead. Our daily lives have no significance whatsoever if there is no resurrection. Now, I think for most of us, it's not that we don't believe that, right? Like I, we believe in theory that Jesus rose from the dead. We hear about it in you know, Bible study lessons, VBS, whatever. In Layton's passage last week, we were told that the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily and physical resurrection of Jesus to life from the dead is essential to the gospel message. The gospel is not good news if Jesus only died. The gospel is not truly good news if Jesus remains dead to this day. The death of Jesus can only mean something if Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And again, like I mentioned, I don't think many of us will challenge that. In fact, we're fine with it. 
But the reality is that like most things that we hear on a Friday morning or Friday evening or Sunday morning, we believe it, but most of us live our lives as if we don't believe it. You can trace what you truly believe about God by how you actually live your life. We can trace what we believe on paper by how we live in practice. How we live reveals precisely what we actually believe about God. And for many of us, for too long, we have been living our lives as if Jesus is dead, not alive. We live our day-to-day lives as if there is no purpose, no meaning, no hope, doing the same old thing as if Jesus truly was dead, powerless and inactive. We live as if the resurrection of Jesus at at, at best is, is just some nice theological doctrine to impress your pastors and small group leaders, and at worst, an afterthought in a gospel message. We live as if the resurrection of Jesus is irrelevant to our daily existence, revealing our actual unbelief in the power of the resurrection. And if this is the case, if we live as if Jesus really has not been raised, then we really have no hope and no reason for living the Christian life. And so in our passage tonight, the Apostle Paul shows us the consequences of what happens when we live as if there is no resurrection. And that brings us to our key idea for our passage this evening. In fact, just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 12 to 34, and we'll look at it in just a second, but I want you guys to just turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. And this is the key idea, the main idea of this passage that we're looking at tonight. The key idea is that a life centered on Jesus, the Messiah, doesn't even matter if there is no resurrection. Okay, so we're going to look at it, look at this uh, passage in two points, two consequences, two consequences if there is no resurrection. The first consequence is if there is no resurrection, then this Christian faith doesn't even matter. If there is no resurrection, then the Christian faith doesn't even matter. Now take a look at verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, we don't know exactly who in the, uh, in the Corinthian church was denying the resurrection of the dead, but it doesn't, doesn't really matter because the denial is life-altering. Since the first century, Christians have always believed that those who belong to Jesus, Jesus' followers, will participate in a resurrection from the dead. Christians have always believed that those who die in Jesus Christ will be risen from the dead. There is no other religion in the history of the world that says that the dead can come back to life. Christianity stands out as the only religion that claims that resurrection from the dead isn't only a possibility, but will be a future reality. And so that means that if you are a Christian, you were created for resurrection. You were created to live. You were created to know God, and not even death would be able to separate you from him. But As nice as this sounds, I think we all know why this is such a hard pill for us to swallow. The resurrection of the dead, much less Jesus' resurrection, is hardly the first place that we turn to when we share the gospel with our friends. Why? Well, it's precisely because of how unbelievable it it is. It, It defies logic. It is scientifically unverifiable. In fact, resurrection just sounds like a page ripped out of a Harry Potter book. If you told people that you believe in a God who raises the dead, they would literally think that you are insane and out of touch with reality. It would confirm all the suspicions non-Christians have of Christians. Because think about it, how can the dead 
come back to life? Have any of you ever met someone who has risen from the dead? And so I think we can understand some of the skepticism of the ancient Corinthians, right? For the Corinthians, death was everywhere. It was simply fact of life. They saw it in nature. They saw it in the rise and fall of nations and empires, and even in their own lives. Everyone knew that the cycle of life was being born, growing old, and then dying. Life sucks, and then you die. This describes not just the Corinthian outlook, but our modern outlook as well. In fact, living in a pandemic has brought us just a little bit closer to the experience of the ancient world. While a pandemic is at a once in a lifetime opportunity, as rare as it is, the pandemic reminds us of the actual violence and horror of our world. The pandemic reminds us that we can try with medical and scientific achievement and advancement, but ultimately we can't tame death and the challenges of our lives. It breaks through the mirage of our self-attempted pursuit of control, safety, and comfort. I mean, if you think about it, we might not be physically dying, but we, seem, but we see glimpses and shadows of death everywhere. Frustration, disappointment, and cynicism for the past year and a half. For some of us, we know people have family members and even friends who have contracted the disease. And while there are less and less new cases of COVID now, people are still dying. For many of us, we have been dying metaphorical deaths, not being able to see our friends, to go out, to do the things that we normally do, to do, to do anything differently than our quarantine routine. And if, even if we have found workarounds, like even if we still see our buddies regularly, it isn't the same. We experience the shadow of death everywhere, even if we aren't biologically dead. And so not only is the resurrection scientifically suspicious, the resurrection is also psychologically suspicious as well. Why? Because death and its shadows trains and tempers our expectations of life. I, mean, I seriously didn't think that the start of 2021 could get any worse, but it did. There is capital insurrection, family members getting COVID, the state of emergency in Texas. And so we stop hoping because hoping simply just becomes some kind of wishful thinking. And after getting our hopes up only to have them dashed upon the rocks, we become disillusioned with life. Right? I mean, how many of you guys have ever considered that the plans that you guys had to make were just pretty much TBD? And so after one thing, one bad thing after another, to protect ourselves from any further frustration and disappointment, we just simply expect very little of life and very little of God. And so I think by now we can understand just maybe just a little bit some of the Corinthian skepticism of the resurrection of the dead. But it's here that the Apostle Paul exposes the grave danger of this skepticism and cynicism. Because if we live our lives as if God will not raise the dead, if we live our lives with no hope of the resurrection, if we live our lives with the, 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 the cynicism and suspicion that God is a liar, then everything falls apart. Why? Take a look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. What is at stake when we live as if God will not raise the dead? when we live as if there is no hope in this world, what is at stake is that we live as if not even Jesus has been raised from the dead. Why? It's because our identity, your identity, your destiny is wrapped up with Jesus' destiny. Because our destiny is so connected with Jesus's, if we live with no hope, what we're actually saying is that Jesus is still dead. If we live as if today is all that there is, if we, if we functionally, functionally live as if, there is no tomorrow, then it calls into question the very thing Jesus promised that he would do. If we live our lives as if this world is all that there is, as if there is no hope for us now, 
and we live our lives as if Jesus has not changed human history one bit, and we live as if Jesus is dead. We live as if Jesus has no power to change our lives if we live as if this life is all that there is. And the Apostle Paul says that there are consequences for this denial, whether on paper, in, in our hearts, or in actuality. Beginning in, beginning in verses 14 and 19, Paul spells out exactly what is at stake if we deny the resurrection. And again, as I've mentioned before, the problem for many of us isn't that we don't believe in the resurrection per se. The problem is that we live as if we don't believe in the resurrection. And if we live our lives, again, like I mentioned, as if this life is all that there is, as if Jesus is dead, lifeless and powerless, there are going to be some life-altering consequences. The Apostle Paul shows us that literally everything hinges upon the resurrection and literally nothing matters if the resurrection doesn't happen. If we aren't raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. The resurrection of the dead is at the heart of the gospel because if we deny our own resurrection by how we live our lives or by our skepticism, then we deny something far worse, Jesus' own resurrection. And so what happens if we deny the resurrection of Jesus, whether in belief or in practice? There are six consequences if Jesus was not raised from the, from the dead. The first consequence is that our work is worthless. Look at the first half of verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, <clears throat> then our preaching <clears throat> is in vain. If Jesus has not been raised, then everything that the Apostle Paul has ever written and said does not even matter. First Corinthians doesn't matter. Second Corinthians doesn't even matter. In fact, all of scripture does not even matter. What point is there in laboring to work on these messages? What point is there in ministering to a bunch of teenagers every week who could care less about going to youth group or doing other religious things if Jesus has not been raised from the dead? Why should I or your leaders go through all the hard work of doing something that none of you guys even care about if Jesus isn't alive? If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. And if there's no gospel, then what are we even doing here? I mean, it just got dark, didn't it? But even worse is that our faith is nothing but some kind of psychological self-help. The second consequence is that our faith is worthless. Look at the second half of verse 14. And your faith is in vain. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then Karl Marx was actually right. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then religion really is an opium for the masses. At best, religion only makes you feel better about yourself and might give you some mental fortitude to carry on, but that is it. At worst, Christianity is just a religion created to soothe our sorry selves from the endless pain of life. And so when Paul says that our faith is in vain, he's pretty much saying that we've trusted in the wrong person. Find a different guy, because if Jesus is still dead, that pretty much makes him the same as every other false savior still dead. That means you've spent the last however many years of your insignificant life believing in a myth. Your parents wasted your time dragging you to church. Your parents wasted their own time dragging themselves to church. You've wasted your time, your energy, and your perfunctory responses coming to youth group. In fact, Lighthouse Community Church has wasted its time trying to be a gospel, gospel-centered church because, well, there is no gospel. That isn't the only consequence. There's a third consequence. The third consequence is that we have believed lies. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. If Jesus has not been raised, then we have just believed a bunch of phony. If, if Jesus has not been raised, then the gospel that I preach every Friday night, that the leaders preach every Friday night, is just a misrepresentation of who God is. I have fed you lies and you have believed my lies. I am as truthful as a Mormon. We are as credible as a cult. If Jesus has not been resurrected, then I have said something about God that is not true, that he can raise the dead when in fact he cannot or will not. And you have all believed in something that is not true. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then you have every reason to question and discount every single word that comes out of my mouth, out of Pastor Kim's mouth or Pastor whoever, whoever's mouth. The belief that Jesus can change your life and, and save you is a complete lie if Jesus has not been resurrected. Because if Jesus hasn't been raised, then all of us, all that we've been doing has been spewing fake news. If Jesus has not been resurrected, then we are the most gullible people on the face of the planet. But being gullible and lied to about God isn't even our worst problem. Take a look at verse 17. We have no redemption. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I mean, just a few verses earlier, the Apostle Paul said that our faith is in vain, but here it's worse than vanity. Our, our faith isn't only empty, it is futile, a complete waste of time, energy, devotion, and sacrifice. Why? Because a Jesus who is still in his grave, a dead Jesus means that we are still dead in our sins. Why? Because God has not vindicated Jesus Christ, the righteous. A dead Jesus means that God has not accepted his sacrifice, which means that we will be the ones who will pay for the penalty of our sins. And those who have died believing and trusting in Jesus are now lost, which, which brings us to verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. We have no future. If Jesus has not risen, then all the precious people who have believed in Jesus and died aren't with the Lord. I mean, think of the, the dear people who believed in Jesus and died. Your, your parents' friends, your grandparents. If Jesus has not been risen, and if there is no resurrection from the dead, then they have perished. They're gone. They're not in heaven. To deny the resurrection of the dead isn't only to deny Jesus' resurrection, but it is to deny any real future as well. In fact, if we die, we have no future. Our small, tiny lives here on earth is all that there is. And where does that finally leave us? Take a look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We have no hope. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, that's it. People have every single reason to pity us for believing in some fairy tale about a God raising the dead. Our non-Christian friends should pity us because without the resurrection, Everything that we have believed in is a lie and a waste of time. Like if there's no resurrection, then what have I been doing for the past 10 years of my life, babysitting a bunch of teenagers who don't even wanna be here on a Friday night when I could be doing something else? If Jesus isn't alive, then why should I suffer the, the, the condescending pity of my non-Christian friends who say that I'm doing such a nice thing for troubled teenagers when they really only think that I'm just wasting my time? Without our resurrection, much less Jesus's, we have no hope. We have every reason to feel anxious, 
every reason to just live up our lives and do the very same things our non-Christians, our non-Christian friends do. We have every reason to feel depressed. Do you see how meaningless everything is without the resurrection of all who follow Jesus? Do you see how meaningless everything ought to be if we live as if there is no resurrection? You see, for the Apostle Paul, everything, literally everything rides on this fundamental truth. For the Apostle Paul, bodily resurrection, our resurrection, the future hope of all who follow Jesus is not an accessory to the gospel. It is not an off-to-the-side theological discussion for theologians to argue about and call it eschatology and to put it in weird books and charts. For the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of all who follow Jesus is right at the center of the gospel. Because to deny our future resurrection is to deny the very heart of the gospel. Because in denying the resurrection, we are denying Jesus' resurrection. A dead Jesus is a Jesus still in his grave. And that is not good news, but bad news. The gospel stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If archaeologists find Jesus' bodily remains lying somewhere in a stone tomb in the middle of Palestine, it is over. The gospel of Jesus crumbles if he hasn't risen. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus is not five steps to a better living, five steps to a better marriage, relationship, whatever. It is not a path to spirituality. It's not something to recite to get you out of hell and into heaven. It is a cosmic story about a real person and real life events that, sh- that, that happened in the world such that this person and these events have altered the shape and trajectory of human history. It is a real story about God coming into the world as Jesus, dying for his people's sins and rising again that has ultimately changed the shape, the events and course of human history. In fact, one scholar writes that an event has occurred as a, re- as, as a result of which the world is now a completely different place. And human beings have the, poss- the new possibility of becoming a different kind of people. You see, the hope of the gospel is not heaven. Don't believe that lie. The hope of the gospel is not some disembodied experience where you're floating in the sky in some, some clouds. The hope of the gospel is not heaven, but resurrection. But if this story is not true, or if we push this hope to the margins, as many of us have done, or if we leave it out altogether, we don't lose an accessory to the gospel. We lose everything. You know, as a pastor, I have the uh, the responsibility of interviewing people who want to become members of Lighthouse. And one of the requirements of being a member at Lighthouse is that you must be a Christian and you must be able to articulate the, the good news of the gospel. And almost all of the people that I've inter- interviewed when asked what the gospel is, answered that the gospel is the good news that Jesus has died for sinners. And they will just sit there happily thinking that they've passed. Wrong, they have not passed. Out of all the two dozen or so people that I've interviewed for church membership, only two people, only two people mentioned the resurrection. A Jesus who only died for sinners is not good news, but bad news. Because a dead Jesus has not guaranteed our salvation. A dead Jesus has no hope for change. A dead dead Jesus means that our counseling ministry is a joke. 
A dead Jesus has no hope for the future. A dead Jesus has no hope and is no gospel at all. The entire Christian faith crumbles and human history has remained the same. And if a dead Jesus is the only story, then there really is no point to to anything that we do. Every single thing that we do falls apart. Are you guys with me? Do you guys follow? But what if it is true? What if this cosmic story isn't just some kind of mythology or some fairy tale? What if this cosmic story is actually true? I mean, just think about it for a second. If, what if this cosmic story isn't false, but true? Then it actually literally changes everything. Take a look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying you're wrong. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Hundreds of people saw the risen Jesus. The Apostle Paul has seen the risen Jesus. It is the only reason why anything written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is credible and worth reading at all. And if Jesus has been raised, if Jesus is alive, then that makes it the greatest news in the entire world. It literally changes everything. All followers of Jesus will come back from the dead. How? The Apostle Paul unpacks his logic in verses 21 and 22. He says this in verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The Apostle Paul parallels Adam with Jesus by saying that because of one human's sin, because through Adam's sin came death, all who are in Adam, in other words, all of us, all humanity is under the curse of death. Because of Adam and through Adam, we are all born into sin and death. And that is not a hot take. We see sin and death everywhere. But if this is true, if it is true that through Adam, we are all born into sin and death, then it's also true that through Jesus' resurrection and life, the second Adam, all who are in Jesus will be made alive. Those who are united with Jesus experience the same thing Jesus experiences. What this means is that what happened to Jesus is what will happen to all of us. If Jesus died and rose again from the dead, guess what? We will too. How is this possible? Take a look at verse 23 but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The Apostle Paul uses an agricultural metaphor, and since none of, none of us, last time I checked, are farmers, we have to dig a little bit deeper to understand the metaphor. First fruits is literally that first fruit that ripens, okay? That first blade of grass that springs out of the ground, the, that first leaf that buds on the tree. The first fruit is a symbolic pattern that what happens to the first is what will happen to all the rest. That first fruit will be followed by another and another, by hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands. The first fruit sets the pattern for what is to come. And the analogy that the Apostle Paul is using is that the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is only the beginning. There will be more to come. Jesus' resurrection set into motion a chain of events that cannot and will not be undone, that will never be unbroken. 
Jesus' resurrection set the pattern for our future so that his resurrection will be followed by one, by three, by 10, by 100, by 1,000, by millions of resurrections of his followers. Because just as Jesus was risen, so will all his followers. Now, do you see why the resurrection of believers was such a big deal for the Apostle Paul? Because if we aren't raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. That is the solidarity that we share with Jesus. And if Jesus was raised, then we will be raised. Just as God vindicated Jesus, God will vindicate us. What happened to Jesus in his resurrection is a pledge. It was a promise, a guarantee of what will happen to those who belong to Jesus. C.S. Lewis writes that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first pioneer of life. And the Apostle Paul gives us a sneak peek into the future of what will happen after we're resurrected. Take a look at verses 24 to 28. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be also subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, there's a lot of dense theology that I would love to unpack, but fortunately for you, don't have time to unpack, so I'll just give you the TLDR. By weaving three different passages from the Old Testament, Genesis 1, Psalm 8, and Psalm 110, the point that the Apostle Paul is making is that in and through the resurrection of Jesus, God has defeated, he has trampled upon death and made Jesus Lord over all things. So that through Jesus, God would be supreme over all, in all, and through all. This is the grand tapestry that every single Christian is a part of. This is the grand story that every single Christian will not only be able to witness, but to participate and to share in. Jesus is the risen Lord, and that is good news. And the big question that I'm sure all of us are wondering is, what does this grand story have to do with my life? What does the resurrection story have to do with how I live today? If it is true that Jesus has trampled upon death, if it is true that Jesus is alive, if it is true that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of history, then everything is different. And there are many, many implications that we can tease out from the resurrection. But I think for us, for this high school group, I think there are four relevant implications of the resurrection for your life. The first is that the resurrection reaffirms God's love for his creation. The resurrection reaffirms God's love for his creation. The resurrection of Jesus, the the last and final Adam, demonstrates that God has not abandoned his creation. I mean, if you think about it, Adam really blew it. But for some reason, God chooses to reverse Adam's decision to die by restarting the human project through Adam's descendant, Jesus. Why? It's because God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, his son, not to damn his creation, but to rescue and to save it. 
The theologian Oliver O'Donovan writes that the resurrection of Jesus is a new affirmation of God's first decision for Adam to live. In other words, in Jesus, God has not abandoned humanity, but is restoring and creating a new humanity. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then God has carelessly abandoned the bodies that he has given to us. But the promise of our resurrection and Jesus' resurrection confirms that God, the creator of the world, has not abandoned us. What this tells us is, what, what this tells us is that, at the very least, that in the resurrection of Jesus, God deeply cares about us and our bodies. Why? Because he is the creator of our bodies. We are his and our bodies are his. What's another simpler way of saying this? God loves our bodies because he created our bodies. And there are so many angles that I can take this, how people view us, how we look in front of others, self-hatred, self-harm, gender dysphoria, how we view ourselves. But I don't have enough time to address all those angles and implications. So before I move on to the main angle that I wanna address, I want us to just simply dwell briefly on this simple truth. The creator God made you and loved you as you are. The final resurrection of our bodies is God's final affirmation of our created value. Just think about that for a second. The resurrection affirms and reaffirms God's love for you. The resurrection of our bodies is God's final decision not to abandon your body, but to resurrect it. We can dwell on this thought alone for all of eternity, but unfortunately we need to move on. Now, as the creator of our bodies, it would therefore make sense that God cares about how we conduct ourselves in our bodies and what we do with our bodies. As the creator of our bodies, our bodies belong to God. Your body is not your own. You are not the owner of your, of your body. Your body is a stewardship from God. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul says that we are to present what? As a living sacrifice to God. I mean, not merely our time, not merely our, our money, not merely our resources, not even merely our lifting gains. He says our bodies. He says to present our bodies, everything that we do in our mortal bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual worship. How we conduct ourselves in our bodies, what we think about in our bodies, what we do behind closed doors in our bodies, what we watch with our bodies, everything. That is our spiritual worship. Now, some of you, I'm, I'm sure, are wondering, well, why does that matter? Uh, why does it matter what we, have, what we do with our bodies if God is going to raise it again anyway? And the reason why it matters is because there is continuity between our present bodies now and our future bodies. Our present bodies are made for resurrection. It's no surprise, therefore, that earlier in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul calls us to flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality, for resurrection. God destined our bodies for resurrection, not corruption. You don't put regular gasoline in a car that is meant for premium gas. You most likely won't be able to get a new phone from Apple when you bring your iPhone into the shower and the touchscreen no longer works. Why? It's because it wasn't made for that. When we use objects outside of its intended purpose, we damage or break them. And in the same way, when we use our bodies beyond its intended purpose and goal, we harm our bodies. And so the, the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection requires us to ask, 
why would you defile your body that is destined and purposed for resurrection? But this runs completely contrary to what our culture says about our bodies. Our culture says that our bodies are our own, that we are the sole authorities of our body. You can do whatever you want with your body. Who cares? The body does not matter. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that, the, that our culture says this precisely because our culture does not believe in a bodily resurrection. Do you know what this modern philosophy is? It's nothing other than a re repackaged modern form of Platonism. Platonism, if you don't know, um, refers to uh, the, the Greek philosopher Plato, where the idea of Platonism comes from. Plato believed that the body is a cage that traps your real self. Okay, therefore, the, the, the body, your body is merely a container for your soul. And it doesn't really matter how you treat your body. And it was this philosophy that was seeping into the Corinthian church. It's for this very same reason that the Apostle Paul warns that bad company corrupts good morals in verse 33 later on. Now, is it possible for something similar to seep into our church? Now, I think I used this illustration before, but I think this illustration is still, I think, pretty apt, like four or five years later. How many of you guys have heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? Johnny Erickson Tata is a faithful Christian who has been walking with the Lord for by now 55 years um, as a quadriplegic, okay? In other words, she had spent the majority of her life with her arms and legs completely paralyzed due to a spinal injury. And uh, I think all of us love uh, Johnny's testimony. I, I know Lighthouse loves Johnny's testimony, so I'm, I'm really subjecting myself to uh, some stoning here for critiquing someone whose name and ground is almost worshiped. But there was a sharing that she had shared nine years ago at another church. And to be fair, the, the, the sharing was fine, okay? It was encouraging, whatever. But there was something that she had said that I didn't think was quite accurate, okay? This is a quote that many others have quoted, but she says this, she says, don't be thinking that for me in heaven, the big deal after I get to see Jesus is to get my new body. No, 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 no. I want a glorified heart. I want a glorified heart that no longer twists the truth resists God, looks for an escape, gets defeated by pain, becomes anxious or worrisome, manipulates my husband with precisely timed phrases. Now, you know, I mean, just from hearing that at, at first glance, that sounds great, right? Like who wouldn't want a, a glorified heart, but that doesn't grumble or complain in the new heavens and new earth. Amen to that. But you know, as I thought more about it, it really revealed a problem that is, I think, just subtle enough to slip by. The problem wasn't that she had too high a view of the heart. The problem was that she had too low a view of the body. The hope of the gospel, like I mentioned, isn't just a new heart. The hope of the gospel isn't even heaven. Heaven isn't even our final resting place. The hope of the gospel is new creation. Could it be possible that even for a conservative church like Lighthouse to be imbalanced and platonic with how we view the heart and the body? What if body and soul, body and heart, are equally important to God? The whole point of this chapter is, is, is to show just how, how much God cares about his physical creation. Not to damn it, but to resurrect it. Because if God cared more about our bodies than our, uh, cared more about our hearts than our bodies, then why would he send Jesus as a baby born in a manger and not simply the Holy Spirit to extract us from our bodies? If God cared more about our hearts than our bodies, then why would God resurrect Jesus with a physical body, with physical scars and physical wounds remaining? 
Jesus could have had a woundless body after his resurrection. He could have re reappeared as nothing or, or as anything, a spirit, a ghost, anything. But he was resurrected with the same scars and holes in his body. Why? It's because the physical holes in his hands and the scar in his side are meant to show us that he has fully taken on the sins and sufferings of our wounds and our scars. That in the wounds and, and scars of our Savior is where we find rest and salvation from our own wounds and scars. That in the physical wounds and scars of our resurrected Lord is precisely where we see most clearly the love of God. We see God's love for us in Jesus' scars. Therefore, we should want a new body that can walk and not faint, to run and not grow weary, to run after God and chase after him with all of our might, just as much as we want a new heart that will not grumble or worry or complain. Johnny might only want a new heart, but I want all of it. I want the fullness of redemption. I want resurrection so that I can love God with all that I am, with my entire being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Knowing what will happen to our bodies in the future shapes what we do with our bodies in the present. He loved you enough to come back for you, to redeem you and to resurrect you. And so what we do in our bodies, how we view our own bodies, how we treat our bodies, how we view and treat the bodies of others, whether honorably or dishonorably matters because the future resurrection of our bodies is God's gracious decision to redignify our bodies. Therefore, honor God with your body. The second implication of the resurrection. You guys with me still? You guys good? The second implication of the resurrection is that the resurrection shows how God makes us into new people. The resurrection shows how God makes us into new people. Just think about it for a second. Okay, think about a risen Jesus, okay? The resurrection of Jesus means that you can actually change. That change is a possibility. It's a reality. I mean, just imagine what it would look like for you to wake up tomorrow morning to the reality that Jesus is alive. How would that color your day? That Jesus' presence in your life isn't stagnant or passive, but really dynamic and active. That his presence is a living presence. The resurrection of Jesus has changed the shape of, our, of human lives and human history, where we have the new possibility of becoming a different kind of people new life, new motivations for living the Christian life, new responses and choices can happen despite the same frustrating circumstances or the same annoying people that bug you over and over again. In fact, I think our lack of emphasis in the resurrection is one reason why even mature Christians can go on self-defeating and self-deprecating endless idol hunts, looking ever deeper into our hearts for roots of sin. If you think about it, change happens not merely when we've gotten to the bottom of idolatry, but when we've turned our gaze to the living Messiah. We spend so much time navel-gazing inward that we never actually ever turn our gaze upward. We've rightly focused on the cross, but in doing so, we've forgotten the tomb that is rolled away. Resurrection, new life, a new set of responses to difficult people, besetting sin and low-grade frustration. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why we are shy about celebrating goodness or why we're easily ensnared by cynicism. It's because in underemphasizing the resurrection, we lack any vision for the resurrecting power of God in our daily lives. 
It's no wonder why we, none of us ever think about the resurrection at all. It's no, it's no wonder why the resurrection is an accessory to the gospel and not really the central piece of the gospel. The third implication of the resurrection. Third, the resurrection shapes the way we view our present circumstances. The resurrection shapes the way we view our present circumstances. Jesus' resurrection transformed how the Apostle Paul processed his present circumstances, his, his life and his sorrows. I mean, you guys know the Apostle Paul. This guy was beaten, <clears throat> tortured. He was whipped. He was shipwrecked. He was placed in house arrest. And just one letter later, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. The Apostle Paul felt like he was going to die, okay? For some of you, the emotional toll is real. You might not be in the same situation as Paul, but we feel the same things as him. We feel afflicted, burdened, distracted, lacking strength to carry through the day. The drudgery of everyday Zoom school makes us despair of life. The fact that we remain doing the same thing every day over and over again feels like a death sentence. Every day feels like a dull and mild form of torture and imprisonment. But listen to what Paul says just one verse later. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who what? Who raises the dead. Paul's reaction and response to trials in his life, the imprisonment, the death sentences hanging over his head reveals a remarkable vision of life. One that promises to undermine our modern commitment to anxiety, depression, and fear, and to free us to a life of reflexive joy, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. How? Because death has been defeated. Death has received its decisive blow in the resurrection. In other words, for the Apostle Paul, death no longer had the last word. The circumstances that the Apostle Paul faced no longer had the final word. The reality of an alive Jesus, not a dead one, transfigured and transposed how Paul saw his life and his circumstances. He woke the Apostle Paul up to a grander vision of life, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. Resurrection was on the Apostle Paul's mind. God is in the business of resurrecting us in the middle of terrible circumstances like ours. Everything is different because Jesus has been raised. Paul's location in Jesus dying and rising shaped how he viewed his physical location in prison. Paul's location in the dying and rising of Jesus transformed how he viewed the burdens that were laid upon his back. Paul's reflection upon the cross and the empty tomb shaped how he viewed the chains that actively cut into his wrists and his ankles. The Apostle Paul believed that if God can bring resurrection out of Jesus' death, then surely he can redeem the worst pain and anguish in all of our lives. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a new way of seeing reality, even when that reality is pitch black. And if you don't view your circumstances through a resurrection lens, then even low-grade, persistent evil, whether it's the unreasonable demands of your teachers or classmates or the frustrating rhythms of quarantine life can bend your soul and wear you down. Because without the hope of the resurrection, 
without setting our gaze on the resurrected Lord. Our sense of frustration, cynicism, anxiety, and depression becomes, in fact, the, the, the dominant lens through which we view our lives. If you are hurting and suffering and experiencing disappointment, I grieve with you. I, I really am sorry. But if you've been hurting and suffering from loss and disappointment this past season, then you'll know how easy it is to only fixate on the pain and suffering, on the disappointment and the frustration. How easy it is to numb our pain and suffering with, with distractions, with video games, social media, and other quick escapes. How likely were you to run to God this season than to something a bit more immediately satisfying? In fact, we've let our pain, our frustration, our boredom, and even our disappointments become the dominant lens through which we view our lives. It has become the, the lens through which we interpret our circumstances. It becomes the lens through which we interpret God. And we start believing that all of life is my pain, my frustration, and my disappointments. And the temptation of the pain and suffering that we face is that it has always the potential to either turn us toward the living God or turn us toward ourselves or to something else. And what most sufferers don't realize is that pain often leads people to develop a certain kind of tunnel vision. We just forget God. We live as if God is dead, not alive. We live as if God is powerless and unable to act. But if Jesus really is raised, if Jesus really is alive, then that actually is good news, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. A resurrection lens frees us from bitterness, despondency, joylessness, and frees us to hope, gratitude, and expectant watching and waiting for God to act. You see, thinking about the resurrection isn't wishful thinking, but grounded reality. It is a big theology that lifts and carries the everyday weights and burdens of our embodied souls. It can carry us. The resurrection of Jesus can carry our darkest days. A crucified, buried, and risen Jesus is who gives hope in the seemingly meaningless pain and circumstances of our lives. I mean, some of us have wondered, what does God know about my suffering? Well, a lot. He entered into it. The eternal Son of God becomes man, takes on real flesh, human flesh, becomes, becomes one like us in all ways yet without sin, knowing physical pain, understanding the psychological challenges of isolation, loneliness, betrayal from the betrayal of, and loss of friends. And he suffered for us and for our sins. But not just that. He rose again for us. A resurrected Lord is the only God who can lift our sorrows. The only God who is particularly interested in our sufferings and has actually done something about it. And while we still grieve, weep, and lament, we do not do so without hope not without the promise that God will make all things right. Our greatest problem isn't just the sin and evil within our hearts. Our greatest problem is that there is evil everywhere. Evil in ourselves, evil in others, evil in the world, evil in creation. Sin has spoiled and intruded God's good creation. And God's answer to sin's intrusion wasn't to sweep it under the rug. God's answer in response to the intrusion of sin was the crucified and risen Jesus how can you say that God does not care about you? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God began to rid and liberate his creation from everything that spoils and kills it. In Jesus, God began to free his creation from bondage to corruption. If Jesus is risen, trampling down death by death, then the world is a different place. 
even when we don't feel it or experience it. And until then, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters of God. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the redemption of our, not hearts, but our bodies. We long for the redemption of our hearts, yes, but we long for the redemption of our bodies. We long for the redemption of the whole creation. The crucified and resurrected Jesus is the ground of all of our hope. He is the living proof that God will make all things right. And we hope and trust that he will in his time and in his way. Fourth and finally, the fourth implication is that the resurrection supplies meaning to the Christian life. If the resurrection is true, it really happened, then there is nothing about the Christian life and faith that is worthless at all. If Jesus was really raised from the dead, then everything that the Apostle Paul mentions in verses 12 to 19 isn't meaningless, but purposeful. It means that everything that we have believed about God, about Israel, Jesus, the church, Christianity, Friday night youth group, Sunday morning worship, everything is true, not a lie. C.S. Lewis writes that Christianity is the true myth. It is the greatest story ever told, and it's true. If Jesus has been raised, then coming to Friday nights, participating in small groups, doing daily devotions, praying to the resurrected Lord, loving your parents and siblings, loving difficult people, working hard in school, evangelizing to your non-Christian friends. If Jesus has been raised, then all of those things matter. They're not pointless things that you just do. The forgiveness, th- of, the forgiveness of sins isn't just wishful thinking, but a reality. The resurrection of Jesus means that we are forgiven, loved, and reaffirmed by the God who is love. The resurrection of Jesus is actually what shapes, gives rise to, and fuels Christian devotion because we're not praying to a dead God. We're not reading the words of a God who is dead. We're praying to a God who is alive who can hear our prayers, whose words are living and active precisely because we trust in a God who is living and active. The resurrection supplies meaning to the Christian life. Everything that you do is not pointless. All right, I gotta wrap this up. It's 9.12. I've been going at this for almost almost an hour. Seriously, over time. But we gotta look at the last five verses of our passage. But it brings us to the final point, okay? You guys still with me? You guys still awake? Our final point, if there is no resurrection, then the Christian life doesn't even matter. If there is no resurrection, then the Christian life doesn't even matter. Look at verses 29 to 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if I, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us drink and let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. I mean, the Apostle Paul is pulling no punches here. But the Apostle Paul is now circling back to his main point. If we won't be raised from the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then everything that we do in the Christian life does not matter. And this is why the resurrection of believers was such a big deal for the Apostle Paul. It was at the very center of the gospel. Because again, if we deny our resurrection, then we deny Jesus' own resurrection. Now, what does it mean 
that people were baptized on behalf of the dead. Well, it doesn't even matter if Jesus was, wasn't raised. Why suffer for the gospel? Why risk our lives? Why go to like places like Japan or Mexico or Myanmar or other parts of the country where, where Christians are dying? Why does that even matter if there is no resurrection? In verse 32, the Apostle Paul pretty much sums up our life if there is no res resurrection. You know what that is? It's YOLO. Literally, YOLO. Like you only live once. So just do whatever you want. Live it up. Party because we're going to die anyway. That's exactly how all of our pagan friends are living their lives. They live as if there is no hope, no resurrection, no risen Lord. But again, Jesus has been raised. It is an event of cosmic proportion of which the world is a different place. If Jesus has been raised, then everything in the first point, everything that we saw in verses 12 to 19 is completely reversed. If Jesus has been raised, then my preaching does have significance and your faith is not pointless. If Jesus has been raised, then what we have believed is true. Nothing in the Christian faith and life is a myth. Our sins have been forgiven and we have redemption. We have a future in the resurrection. And above all, if all of this is true, then we of all people have the greatest hope, the greatest news to share. We have the greatest hope that can sufficiently carry us through the darkest of our days. Jesus is alive. And everything is different because he is. And so the Apostle Paul in verses 34, 33 to 34 is calling us to do one main thing, two, two main things. You know what he's saying? He's saying to wake the freak up. Wake up, Christian. That's the Erechai translation of the Apostle Paul's words. Out of the 20-something verses that we covered, wake up and stop sinning are the only two imperatives. Freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, Youth, servant, wake up to a living hope. Why do you live as if there is no hope? Why do you live as if, there is, as if this life is all that there is? Wake up, because Jesus is alive. We don't have a dead Lord, but a risen one. If there is no resurrection, then nothing matters. But if Jesus is resurrected, then literally everything matters. The world is a different place. The resurrection of Jesus is the climactic beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the last and final Adam. Let's pray together. Father, a lot of words have been spoken, and I'm not even sure if any of those words would be remembered by the students, but if they can remember one thing, I pray that it would be this. That, you that your son is risen. And because he is alive, because we are praying to the risen Lord right now, then the whole world is a different place. Our, our lives have meaning. Our lives have purpose. Nothing is just nihilistic. And we live in anticipation. We live now recognizing, hoping, and waiting upon your return. But in the meantime, we live now presenting our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, for that is our spiritual worship. We thank you, Father, and we ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.